Greg Dooley lies motionless on his left side. His body is crumpled, his eyelids shut. The singer's expression is blank, his mind unconscious. His wavy black hair mashes up against a pillow. Wrapped up in white sheets, Dooley looks limp and frail, particularly in the eerie pall cast by the yellow haze sunlight filtering through the window. The bumpy outline of his physique, like an ancient mummy, seems small and insignificant. If not for the methodical blip of heart monitors tracking his breathing, one could easily presume him dead. He almost is. Dooley is in the midst of a fifty-hour coma that, before it ceases, will see the singer flatline and receive last rites. As the Afghan Whig's frontman remains stationary on a bed in an intensive care unit at a downtown Austin hospital, bassist John Curley slowly paces outside the room's door, staring down at the floor in disbelief. His solemnity has nothing to do with the group's future, which, as an active band, will effectively be over within a year. He's concerned about whether or not Dooley will survive, and if he does, whether he'll recover without suffering brain damage or related health issues. Hours before being forced into traction, Dooley led his Cincinnati ensemble through a sweaty, review-style concert in front of a packed house on December 11, 1998, at Liberty Lunch. Teasing out songs with impromptu banter and snippets of Prince, James Booker, and Beatles tunes, the Afghan Whigs were again proving themselves the most riveting live rock act going. A band so formidable on stage, Dooley was able to convince Columbia Records to pony up the money to allow the group to travel with horn players, backup singers, and a pianist. Persuasive, smooth, and confident, he's someone who doesn't easily take no for an answer or back down from a challenge, particularly when his friends are involved or his ambitions questioned. While they give no indication of prior turmoil during the two-hour-plus show, Upon arriving at the now-leveled Texas venue, the Whigs are met with good old boy attitude. Along with Dooley, opening act Alvin Youngblood Hart and tour support vocalist Steve Myers, both African-American, customarily pound on the metal fire door in order to gain entrance for sound check. An angry redneck greets them. Niggers! The remark sends Dooley into frenzy. He grabs the hick by his billy goat beard, yanking him around as a pit bull would a chew toy. After learning of the incident, Liberty Lunch managers pledge to remove the offending employee. The concert goes off as planned. But this being Austin, land of George W. Bush, and the very city where the Whigs were sued by a girl who was accidentally nicked by a water pitcher passed around in the crowd, Texas-style justice is about to be served. Long after finishing the closing, Miles is dead, and at the end of a scheduled after-show meet-and-greet, Dooley enters the men's restroom to urinate. The last thing he remembers is washing his hands. It's probably best that he not recall the specifics of being hit from behind, smacked with what he believes was a two-by-four, before being kicked twice in the head while he was already down, or that he recollects his assault at the hands of a loser named Tater, the same rube who rudely answered the door and learned that Dooley isn't someone to take lightly before milling about in the club, so he, with assistance from fellow bouncer Porkchop, could blindside his target and fracture his skull. Or that Dooley relives hitting the lunch's unforgiving concrete floor head first with no chance to react, 
let alone fight back. Or that he reflects on his pool of blood being left on the floor by Liberty Lunch Management, which concocted a false defense and protected Tater and Porkchop by sneaking the tandem out a side door before police arrived and started asking questions. Or that he knows that as news of the attack hits the wires, haters light up internet message boards saying the singer deserved his fate.